0: Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful that we can offer you praise that is pleasing to your ears. What a gracious gift that songs, hymns, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs are. They approach you on your throne, and you are pleased to hear your children sing your praises. And it is in Christ that you are pleased with them. And tonight we turn our attention to Christ, to our great Savior. And I pray that you would impress upon our hearts a deeper love and understanding of the cross, of our redemption. of your forgiveness of our sins. Help us tonight to fall more in love with you as we receive more love from you. In your name we pray, amen. So as I begin tonight, I'd like to go um, back to Genesis So as I think about, um, I'd like to start with the covenant of grace. So for a moment we will go back to Genesis and not deal straight with uh, Peter, but back to uh, creation and how in Genesis 3, uh, Adam, as the Westminster Confession of Faith says, that the chief end of man, even in the garden before the fall, was to glorify Him and enjoy, glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So I think we see that um, in Genesis before the fall, as well as that is our um, the chief end of man after the fall as well. But in Genesis we see um, the covenant of grace, God's covenant with His people, and we see that in the beginning God had created man. And all fellowship with man uh, was perfect, and it was um, totally complete. We had complete fellowship with God, but with one command not to eat of the fruit of the tree. And after Adam had reached to a point to attain a knowledge and attain an equal standing with God, he shattered this fellowship. And plunged humanity into um, enmity with God. And with this fall came a great division uh, or a, um, a great divide between the the God who created us and man, his creatures. The creature chose to worship creation rather than the creator because of the fall of Adam, the rest of humankind was um, plunged into uh, blindness, loving darkness, hating the light, refusing the light. But God, after the fall, in Genesis 3.15, God uh, makes his first promise to the man. He makes a covenant with man that he will... Um, restore his people throughout the Old Testament. But in Genesis 3.15, we see the first promise, the first foreshadow of Christ. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And now notice in this verse, he will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, but also between your offspring and her offspring. So this goes out to more than just who would be the offspring, Christ, and the serpent, or Satan. This, prom- this promise and this foreshadowing, this looking down the pipeline, shows a massive warfare going on between The children of God, or the seed of the woman, and the seed of the serpent. You see plenty of times when Jesus is approaching Pharisees. You are of your father, the son of the devil. So we see this seed warfare that will last throughout all. And then we even see it immediately in uh, Jacob and Esau, or in, um, excuse me, in Cain and Abel. We see Cain rising to kill his brother, Abel we see the start of that seed, the seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent, and there will be enmity between them. And then we see the consummation, or the pinnacle point of this, he shall bruise your head, the serpent shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise, or, the seed of the woman will bruise the serpent's head, and, the seed of the serpent will bruise his heel. So we know that God is faithful and promises redemption. We see that in immediately with the response of grace towards man for the fall. And we see throughout all of the Old Testament promises to Abraham that he will make him uh, the father of many nations. And many nations will be blessed because of him he says I over and over again to Israel I will be your God and you will be my people this covenant of grace goes through all generations and reaches its pinnacle in Christ reaches the focus point of God keeping his promise God promised Abraham he swore by himself to keep this covenant he knew man would fall as they have already fallen But God says, I will do this. I will complete. I will fulfill my end of the covenant. And I will make you my people. And I will be your God. We see in uh, Jeremiah 50. If you can flip there quickly. We see in Jeremiah fifty verses uh, seventeen through twenty. We see uh, that it, that a part of God's covenant is that He will be their shepherd, and He will gather His flock, His sheep that are scattered abroad. Jesus, or God's plan of redemption, starting in Genesis, to restore the relationship and the communion with man that has been broken in the Garden. God was perfectly in. Uh, perfect fellowship with himself before creating man and he wanted to share that fellowship with his creation and then man falls and now God has established a covenant of redemption a covenant of grace that he will bring to completion and we see here in uh, Jeremiah 50 verses 17-20 through that Israel is a scattered uh, sheep it says Israel is a hunted sheep driven away by lions. First the king of Assyria devoured him, and now at last Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has gnawed his bones. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing punishment on the king of Babylon and his land. And as I punish the king of Assyria, I will restore, this is God, I will restore Israel to his pasture. And he shall feed on Carmel and in Bashan and his desire shall be satisfied on the hills of Ephraim and in Gilead. In those days and in that time, declares the Lord, iniquity shall be sought in Israel, and there shall be none. And sin in Judah, and none shall be found. For I will pardon those whom I leave as a remnant. We see also, flip over in Ezekiel 50, or Ezekiel uh, 34 Ezekiel 34 we see this more clearly God is pronouncing a judgment on the shepherds of Israel because they were not doing their job they were feeding themselves and they were not caring after the sheep of their fold and we see in verse uh, in chapter 34 verses, uh, verse 10 at the end he says uh, I will start from the beginning thus says the Lord God behold I am against the shepherds and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep no longer shall the shepherds feed themselves and God says I will restore I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them verse 11 for thus says the Lord God behold I I myself will search for my sheep and I will seek them out. We see God is taking it upon himself to restore his people to right fellowship with him. Also in verse 15, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. So we see God's covenant of grace to restore his sheep that are scattered abroad. And we see his promise to Abraham that he will make him, he will bless, many nations will be blessed because of him and because of his seed. And then in John 10, we see uh, in a very familiar passage, we have a man uh, in chapter 9, a man born blind. And he is healed. And he is healed for the purpose that God may be glorified. And that they may know that Jesus is the Son of God. And then they, the Pharisees respond with calling him, uh, accusing him of blasphemy. And uh, Jesus responds with the, uh, speaking truly, truly in verse 1 of chapter 10 Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. Jesus is saying, I have entered through the door. I am the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him. For they know his voice, a stranger's voice. A stranger they will not follow. But they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Jesus says in verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. We see that Christ is the fulfillment. He is the shepherd. He is the promised seed of David. That God promised to restore a people. This covenant of grace comes to a fulfillment in our passage we see zoomed in the cross and the atonement of Christ the pinnacle of the story the foreshadowing of all of the old testament all the prophets looked forward to the coming Messiah to the fulfillment of the covenant when Christ or when God would redeem his people and restore them to right relationship we see all throughout first peter This covenant language. Or this um, redemption of a people language. In verse 1. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. In chapter 2 verses 9. But you are a chosen race. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. A people for his own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you are not a people... But now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And then in our, in our verses from a couple of weeks ago, in verse 21. For to this you have been called. You have been called to this. You have been called to suffer with Christ. Who has been called? Well, he has been saying it from the beginning, from verse 1 to verse 9 to now. God is restoring a people. He is keeping His part of the covenant. He is fulfilling the covenant. He swore by Himself to do so. And so now as we zoom in tonight and we take a a really hard look at the atonement of Christ, we see the central point of this redemption. We see a couple of different things. We see the two natures of Christ we see He's fully God and fully man. We see uh, the atonement in full and all the, the pieces that go into the atonement. Imputation, substitution, penalty, and deity. And then we will look at what this means uh, for us now. So first, Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man. Man, this um, this is a mystery to us. How he can be both fully God and fully man? It's uh, similar to trying to describe the Trinity. You know, that you have one being in three distinct persons. Yet we have Jesus Christ, who is fully God and fully man. Without so, he is. And in an easy way to look at this or an easier way to look at this is is seeing what it's not, what it doesn't mean. Jesus Christ having two natures. What it doesn't mean is those two natures are uh, mixed together or they are confused together. There is no confusion. He is fully God and fully man without mixture, without confusion, and without separation. There is no division or subtraction. He's not... Fully God, and then when He takes on man, uh, He takes on flesh. You don't divide. He's not fifty percent, fifty percent. He's not. You don't subtract from His deity to add His humanity. The humanity of Christ is seen throughout Scripture. He's hungry. He's thirsty. He's sad. He grows in favor with God. How many of us have thought of that before? That he grows in favor with God. And he grows in wisdom. Uh, I found it uh, incredibly helpful when I heard Sinclair Ferguson talk about the humanity of Christ. And how he had to seek the scriptures. He had to be a man of the word of God. He had to abide, delight, and obey in the word of God. He had to rely on the Father. He was oftentimes found going away to pray to rely on the Father. He didn't just have some um, subconsciously we think about this. He didn't just have the knowledge of God. He didn't have just the Bible memorized on his own. He was like you and me, yet without sin. He had to seek the Scriptures. He had to study the Scriptures. Store it up in his heart that he might not sin against God. He had to become like us in every respect in order to be an appropriate sacrifice. He was not a superhuman, in other words. So we see... Uh, Herb talked about last week, he committed no sin. And so we say, of course he committed no sin. He was God. But he was just like us, yet without sin. He was a natural man with natural feelings, yet without sin. Now the deity of Christ in order to bear the penalty he must be divine only god can bear such wrath only god can bear god's wrath and only god can raise from the grave and now and then after christ's resurrection and ascension he is uh, reunited with he is also both fully god and fully man in his resurrection So now let's move on to the atonement. And with the atonement, as I mentioned earlier, there is uh, four aspects that I want to cover. Number one, imputation. And I'll explain these. Substitution, penalty, and deity. And all of these are necessary for the atonement. The atonement is simply Christ's death and work on the cross, achieving salvation, redeeming a people for himself. So first with imputation, um, scholars use this term, double imputation. And what what imputation means is to credit or ascribe something to a person. So what we have in this double imputation, and we see this in our text tonight, in verse 24 says, he himself, I'm going to read both verses, our verses are verse 24 and 25. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So you see this, uh, this imputation, this, um, he himself bore our sins in his body on a tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. And then we see this covenant language. For you are straying like sheep. He, again think about uh, the Old Testament language. When he was gathering a sheep. He was gathering his people. He said I will be their shepherd. For you were straying like sheep. But have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So we go again back to this double imputation. So we have, imputation is to credit or ascribe something to a person. And so in 2 Corinthians 5.21 it says, For our sake he became sin. Christ became sin who knew no sin. He was sinless. That's what verse 22 tells us. For our sake he became sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So what is double imputation? So double imputation is, what is. so in other words, uh, what is credited to Christ? Our sin, this is what our verses are telling us, He Himself bore our sin in His body on, a tr- on the tree. He has, our sins have been imputed, have been ascribed to Christ. And, not only that, but his righteousness that he lived, his sinless life, has been imputed or accredited to his people, to the sheep that have been straying and have now returned to the shepherd. We are not merely uh, declared guiltless. That would, be half, that would be half the imputation. If we were just guiltless, that would mean Christ uh, had our sins imputed to him but then we, were not imputed, we, were, we did not receive His righteousness. Therefore, we are now guiltless and as, as if to start over. And then now what happens? So Christ dies for our sins. Our sins are imputed to Him. And now we are here to start over. We are just now declared innocent to move on about our lives. No, the other half, the double imputation is now we receive Christ's righteousness. His righteous life, his sinless life, is now uh, accredited to our account. In Galatians uh, 3, go to Galatians three ten verse 14. We see this a little bit more clearly. Galatians 3, 10 through 14. We see, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse... For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So we see that Christ was sinless, and he was perfect, and he was holy. But he became guilty by imputation. He became guilty by our sin being accredited to his account. That is why he can bear our sin on the cross. So now this, this, this clarifies uh, our justification. Because we are justified by Christ's righteousness. So we are justified, uh, I was talking to A.J. before, and so the, uh, the Belgic Confession uh, makes this really clear. But basically in summary, it's, uh, it says, Paul rightly says we are justified by faith alone. That is, a faith without works But we are not justified by faith itself. We're justified because we believe that Christ lived a sinless life, a perfect life, and when he died, he bore our sins. Our sins were taken on himself. So he takes our sin, dies in our place, and then we receive his righteousness. So uh, uh, we are justified by faith in Christ's righteousness, uh, Accredited to us. This is uh, faith alone, in Christ alone. This also helps us to eliminate a lot of heresy. Understanding that we are saved because of Christ's righteousness accredited to us exposes works based salvation for what it is. Think about it. If we were saved, if we are saved by faith, since we are saved by faith, in Christ's righteousness being accredited to, to us, and Him taking our sin, bearing the penalty for it, and His righteousness being given to us, wh- what are we working for? Because it is Christ's righteousness that we have now in faith. And so, if we are to say that we can work to achieve salvation, we can do it's faith in Christ, Plus, works, then that would that would be saying that the righteousness that Christ has been, the righteousness of Christ that has been uh, credited to our account was not sufficient, and that's silly, that's ludicrous, that's heresy. And then we all we also can see this uh, in those in the uh, heresy of losing your salvation. How can we lose our salvation if when we ha- when we believe that our sins were paid for? And that not only were our sins paid for, but now we have received the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Can that righteousness be taken back? Can the faith be unpaid for? And this is, what, this is where the importance of the, the covenant of grace that God has set out to fulfill and to complete. He has set out to save a people, to save his sheep, to bring in the sheep that are outside of his fold. To bring them in, to atone for their sin and to give them righteousness. This is the double imputation. And so now we see that Christ is our righteousness. This is why it makes so much sense when Paul is talking about always in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. He always says that. We are saved in Christ. What does he mean? We are saved in Christ's righteousness. The righteousness of Christ has been accredited to our account. We are now as righteous... We are now before God as righteous as Jesus Christ himself. We can approach God with Christ's righteousness on our account. Jeremiah 30, uh, 33. Flip there real, really quick. Jeremiah 33 uh, verses 14 through 16. We see this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. We saw this already, the covenant, the fulfillment that God is working. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. The Lord is our righteousness. Why? Because we have His righteousness accredited to our account. He takes our sin on His account and gives us His perfect sinless righteousness. Also Romans 10.4. Romans 10.4 says... Romans 10:4 says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So we see that Christ is the end of the law. The law has no more dominion over you as believers because you are now accredited to grace. You are now under the law of grace. And we also, in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30, we see it most clearly. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us, so Christ became to us, wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Where is the boasting for works-based righteousness? There is none. Because the perfect righteousness of Christ is now on our account. We are now righteous before God. Again, I've already said that we stand before God as righteous as Christ is. It makes total sense because we have Christ's righteousness. Christ is our righteousness. We see also that Jesus is the blessed man in his sinless life. Jesus is the blessed man that scriptures talk about. In Deuteronomy, a blessing will come on those who keep the law. No one can keep the law. Jesus is the only one who kept the law perfectly. He is the blessed man. Psalms 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. That's none of us. That's Christ. That's Christ's righteousness. Christ is the blessed man. Matthew 5. and all the beatitudes. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Who is this blessed man? This is Christ. And this blessedness is, a, is accounted to us by imputation. Christ becomes a curse. Christ is guilty by imputation because our sins are now credited to Him. And He suffers the full weight of God's wrath for them. So that we might live in righteousness, in His righteousness. So now, substitution. So that's, in the atonement, we have the four. Imputation, substitution, penalty, deity. So now, substitution. This is not representation. He did not portray on the cross. In our verses here, uh, in in 1 Peter. He himself bore our sins in his body, on the tree. That we might die to sin and live righteous. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. This is not portraying or symbolic that he died on the cross. He didn't represent us on the cross, but it was substitution. He took our place on the cross. We can see this through the eyes of Barabbas. When they, when they had Barabbas and Jesus, and it, was a, and it was part of the custom that one of them would be freed. One of them can be freed. And Paul says, who shall shall go free? And the people said, Barabbas, we want Barabbas. We want Barabbas to come free. The thief, the robber, the murderer. Through the eyes of Barabbas, we see the substitution. You think Barabbas said, he represented me? No, it was substitution. Christ took the place of Barabbas. Jesus Christ received the full penalty. This is the third aspect. The penalty. The wrath of God in full. We will never know the full measure of this pain. How extreme it must have been to think about. A sinless being. A sinless person. Living a sinless life. Coming from full fellowship and Uh, community in perfect harmony with the father the son and the holy spirit the son taking on flesh living a sinless life already coming relying totally on the father and then bearing the full weight of wrath being forsaken of god He was abandoned, left behind, deserted, and going from perfect communion and relationship with God to crying out, "My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you left me? Why have you abandoned me?" He took on the full penalty, the full measure of God's wrath for our sin that was imputed to him. Colossians two fourteen. Colossians 2.14 says, starting in verse 13, And you who are dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, that is all of us, all of the ones who in the covenant of grace God has set out to restore, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. How? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. How did He do that? This He set aside, nailing it to the cross, bearing the full penalty of our sin. We will never know the extremes of this. There's a mystery here. Jesus was so extreme that he sweat drops of blood Mark says his soul was sorrowful unto death It says as he was as he explained to his disciples that he was sorrowful unto death he went away to pray and he fell down He didn't kneel he fell down He fell to the ground asked that if this cup that this cup would be taken from him but Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. What will? The redeeming of a people. The covenant of grace. At its pinnacle. At its pinnacle moment. So now we have deity. So we have had imputation. Substitution. Penalty. And deity. We've already hit on this a little bit. But if he was a mere man, he would not have risen again. He could not bear the penalty. He could not give us his righteousness. He was obedient to the Father. He delighted to give himself and please the Father. We see uh, the juxtaposition, the... the. Uh, Paradox of the majesty and meekness of Christ in these moments. How Christ was both the lion. How Christ is both the lion and the lamb. Humbling Himself to be a man, to be thirsty, to be hungry, to have to grow in knowledge, to have uh, to be as a baby, to wear diapers. As AJ talked about probably last semester. The meekness of Christ, the service of Christ, the service, uh, washing disciples' feet, all of that. We see the meekness of Christ. And we see the majesty of Christ um, in his deity. So we see this imputation, this substitution, this penalty, and the deity. So, what does this mean for us today? Well, to the unbeliever. And I'm not going to assume that we are all believers in here and that we are all part of the sheep, but we see in verse 25 that this offer goes out to you who are wandering. We have a good shepherd who leaves the 99 to get the one. And all of heaven rejoices at the one who comes to know him. Unbeliever, you are still in your sins. You are still a straying sheep. And you must come to the shepherd. You are under condemnation and will not escape the wrath of God for eternity. And a lot of times we hear this word, eternity. And we just get numb to it. It's not a day, it's not a week, it's not a couple of years. And believers need to hear this too, because we need to be sorrowful over the people who will be perishing in hell for eternity. It's not a day, it's not a week, it's not a couple years, it's not even thousands and thousands of years, it's forever. And to the believer, what does this mean for mean for us today? What does it mean for the believer today? Worship God and find comfort in the Good Shepherd. Worship Him for these, uh, for what He has done, for what for Him committing, living a life, becoming meek and lowly, committing no sin, living a life full of sorrow, bearing our sin, the penalty of our sin to Him. Worship God, follow Christ's example. This whole section of uh, this whole last little piece of chapter 2 in Peter is about following his example. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. We should worship God for the uh, glorious um, life that he lived and is now accounted accredited to us so that we may live forever. He has ransomed you by the blood, by his blood. These truths should fuel our worship. We should worship in all praise, humility, gratitude. How can we not praise God for bearing our guilt? How can we not be humble knowing that our sin put him on the cross? And that the righteousness we have is Uh, Not in ourselves at all. It's all of Christ. Our righteousness, the Lord Jesus Christ, is our righteousness. And we we can worship with full gratitude and joy. Not only that, but we can have full assurance. For the believer who lacks assurance, do you know that you stand before God with Jesus Christ's righteousness himself? His own righteousness, that is full assurance. For the believer also, we should follow the example of Jesus. Die to sin and live to righteousness. We see that in our text. In verse 24, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree That we might, for the purpose that we would die to sin and live to righteousness. You are now free from the law that has condemned you and now you are under grace. You are to live a life that pleases the one who set you free. And you are to hate that which causes him displeasure. Fear displeasing your heavenly Father. Do all that you can to see His smile. For He has redeemed you. He has set out a plan since the fall. Since before the foundation of the world. To restore you to Himself. And He has lived a sinless life full of sorrow. Full of grief. So that you might have His righteousness. Righteousness. We see in the Bible that faith works through love. Our faith works through, first off, from the love that God has shown us. And then our faith works from the love that we have for Him, for what He has done for us. And this faith works through love. He died so that we would die to sin and live to righteousness. Righteousness. How can we not live for Him and live to see His smile? Live to see, live a life that pleases Him. And it doesn't take part in things that displease Him. So the believer, because of these, these truths, because of the atonement, because of the covenant of grace, because of uh, the atonement, amputation, substitution, penalty, and deity. This should fuel our worship, and this should uh, bring us to the cross. This should um, lead us to live a life that is constantly dying to sin and living to righteousness for His praise and His glory. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful For your righteousness that has been accredited to our account. You have punished the sinless one who has taken upon himself our sin, our shame, our guilt. And you have clothed us with majesty in Christ's righteousness. And I pray that this truth would land on us heavily. So that we would, we would no longer live in sin. But we would die to sin and live to the righteousness that we have in Christ. In your name we pray. Amen.